There are those in the world who mostly think, um, um, Rob, could we get those so that I can see the peoples? Can we get them? I really liked the way it looked when you guys were leading, but now I want to hi everybody over there. And hi, off campus. I'm really glad that you're here. On YouTube. Hey, what's up, YouTube? We're glad you're here. Hopefully that was super easy for you to find this morning. So listen, there are some people in the world who think uh, that they have done too much harm. They have done too much harm in the world to ever be anything than a bad person. And that's just the way that they see themselves. There's just, there's just nothing good about them. And there are those in the world who mostly think, well, I try to be a good person. I've obviously done some bad things. Like no one's perfect. But um, I, I try to be a good person. And that's basically how they live their lives. And we're going to come back to that second group later. But for now, I want us to think about that first group. Those people who think they've done too much harm in the world to ever be anything other than bad. Um, I, I want you to think about them. What do we do with people who really have done some, in our minds, very, very horrible things? What, what, what do you do if you're a liar, a cheater, a thief, an abuser, an adulterer, or a murderer? You're like, I don't know. That's not me, guys. So... What if, you, what if you've broken the law or you've broken trust or you've broken promises? What if you're um, an absentee parent or a dishonest employee or a closet alcoholic or a porn addict or a chronic gossip? What do we do with you? What do you do with you? And today we're launching a new series with these questions because... This series is built into three parts. First of all, in the month of October, reconciling the past. In, in November, overcoming the present and secure in the future. And we're going to deal with uh, sin. We're going to deal with family of origin. We're going to deal with inadequacy, being feeling too young or too old. We're going to deal with what do you do if you've disqualified yourself from something in some way. We're going to learn strategies to overcome whatever is happening in your life today. And then in Advent, which is the Christmas season, uh, we're going to look into the second coming of Christ and get the future into our hearts. So it is a new season. It's a new season here. Um, And we are spending the rest of the year under one banner, but with three different emphases. Uh, One banner, a season of, can you guess? Hope. A season of hope. Thank you, Amazon, for having those shipped overnight. We appreciate that. (laughs) Reconciling the past, overcoming the present, secure in the future. We have every reason to be people of hope. And so today we're going to start by reconciling the past with this statement, you don't know what I've done. How do I have hope? You don't know what I've done. I want to start there. So listen. There were two men in the same city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had huge flocks of sheep, herds of cattle. The poor man had nothing but one little female lamb, which he had bought and raised. It grew up with him and his children as a member of the family. It ate off his plate. It drank from his cup and it slept on his bed. It was like a daughter to him. One day, a traveler dropped in on the rich man. He was too stingy to take an animal from his own herds or flocks to make a meal for his visitors, so he took the poor man's lamb, prepared a meal, and set it before his guest. How does that make you feel? It's bad, right? <laughs> it's bad. Does, that, like, your, does your want for justice in the world just sort of rise up? I hope it does. Like, it should, right? Sorry, Nate, I hope this doesn't bother you, but 
I have, there's a squeaky spot on the stage and it's driving me bananas. I don't want to stand on it anymore. Uh, your need for justice in the world should just like kind of rises up, doesn't it? And I'll tell you something that this is exactly how King David, that Old Testament of Old Testament fame, this is exactly how King David felt too when he heard this story. Because the prophet Nathan was telling him the story. I just read it to you from the message paraphrase. And uh, from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, you can follow along, of course, in your version app. You can hit more and then events and then find this there. Here's what, here's in the, from the NIV, here's what happens when King David hears that same story. He says, it says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity, right? Yeah, that's right. Good judgment, David. A little harsh, maybe. But very good, like, in, in general, that, that offense should not go unanswered. Verse 7, then, David said to, then Nathan said to David, you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Ouch. Oh, I am that man. Maybe you're familiar with this story. It's told in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. The mighty King David, uh, the mighty King David was at home when he probably should have been out to war with, uh, as, as his army was and his army commanders, of course, were. And and he saw Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, on her roof bathing while Uriah was out fighting his war. And so he slept with her, and she got pregnant. And when he found out she was pregnant, he called Uriah home from the battlefield under false pretenses and in order for him to kind of send him home so that he could be home and sleep with his wife, and hopefully it would cover up the whole affair. But Uriah, being a man of honor, refused to go home, saying, I can't, I can't go home and spend time with my wife. I, I, like, the men are still on the battlefield. It would be wrong for me to do that. They can't come home. I'm not going to go home either. And he actually stayed at the palace. So David wrote orders to his commander to put, to put Uriah into a place where he would definitely be killed on the battlefield. He sealed up the orders, and he gave them to Uriah to deliver to the army commander. That's gross, right? He's carrying his own death sentence back to the battlefield with him. I wonder if he knew. He probably knew. And sure enough, Uriah was killed. David took Bathsheba as his wife. And then Nathan came to him with this story. Now listen, you might, if you don't know a lot about David, that's cool. Let me just tell you what the Bible says about him. I know you think it probably says, uh, and, and David did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord and his family was punished for generations. No, it says that David was a man after God's own heart. How? This is something my kids always say. They always say like when something weird happens or they go, how, how, how? And I want you to imagine yourself just for a minute, just imagine yourself being the prophet Nathan. 
and you have to deliver this message, and you're standing somewhere between uh, the man after God's own heart, the man that was chosen, the one who's writing the Psalms, the one who has trusted God through some of the most difficult circumstances, and this other David that just had somebody killed so that he could have his wife. And you're standing between these two Davids and you're, you're risking your life to tell this story. And so you ask yourself, how is this the same person and, and, and what, what is David going to say and what's going to be the outcome here? Because David was the king and nobody could tell him what to do. And there Nathan is saying, you are this man. So... Um, here, this man after God's own heart, who is literally a murderer and adulterer, responds to Nathan. And here, in the response, we hear, some, we, we hear what I suspect is the reason that David was and still is called a man after God's own heart. It's in his response to this rebuke, even after committing adultery and murder. It says this, uh, chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's all he says. I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but because by doing this you have shown utter contempt to the Lord, the son born to you will die. There's a consequence, of course, there, but notice that David doesn't give a word of defense he doesn't, it's just remarkable. He doesn't give a word of defense. He just simply says, I've sinned against the Lord. What was in David's heart? Like, what was going through his mind in that moment? What is it that turned him um, back into the, from this, like, cold and calculating murderer into, back into this, this one who understood his place before the Lord? What happened? What was that thought process like? What, what was the transaction there? We actually have a really good idea of it because he wrote Psalm 51 in this time. And you get a glimpse into what's going on in his heart. Let's read it together, Psalm 51. And how do we know that Psalm 51 was written in this time? Because deep Bible scholars have mined it out, and also Scripture just says it, actually, just says it, right at the top of Psalm 51. <laughs> psalm 51 literally says, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after have, had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Okay, so it's pretty clear when this psalm was written. We don't have to guess or wonder. And it says this. This is what David wrote in this moment, or in the, in the, in the days to follow. This is uh, with regard to this situation. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. 
Wow. Like that's a very different response to the way he had been living. And so I want to say this to you this morning. If your label for yourself is, you don't know what I've done, I want to tell you that there is a way to reconcile the past, and that, dear friends, is why we can have hope in every season. David was guilty of murder with a motive of adultery. Have I mentioned that already? He had no grounds for appeal because literally under the law, he was sentenced to death. And he knew it. He knew it immediately that he had, there was no excuse for what he had done. Literally, the reality of that hit him like a ton of bricks. You can hear it in the response. And so somehow his inner monologue goes from how do I cover my tracks? Because that, that was the whole thing. One mistake leads to another mistake leads to another mistake. How do I cover up what I've done? Somehow his inner monologue goes from that to how did I do this to God? Quite a transition. There's something that breaks inside of him, and he completely accepts God's judgment. It's just, it's a fascinating thing to behold. Because here is what David realized, I think, in an instant, that his disoriented, um, his whole disoriented life and all the craziness that was going on was the result of his sin, and it needed to be dealt with. And this is singularly important. It's so important, in fact, that I wrote in my notes, I just hope that you'll remember this and it will change you every time you hear this song on Chime 96.7, that I was just, I couldn't help it. I was just like, this happens to me when I'm writing sometimes and I was just like, I don't care who you are or where you're from. Don't care what you did. Here we go. As long as you get this, okay? From now on, from now on. Thank you, Backstreet Boys. From now on. I don't care. I don't care who you are, where you're from, or what you did, as long as you understand the principles here. I want to, uh, like, listen, if you, have, if you have a past that needs to be forgiven or reconciled or redeemed, David, David's response holds so much understanding and promise and hope for you. So let's take a closer look at it. I just want to uh, take a, a closer look at this scripture with you so you understand what's going on here. Um, and then we are going to apply it. And it's so great because it's Communion Sunday. And we are going to get a chance to just bring our hearts before the Lord like this. So it, right in Psalm 51, it starts off by saying, I'm going to see if this is going to work. Oh, hallelujah. Uh, it says this. I want you to see your unfailing love. I know I crossed it out. You'll be okay with that. I'm using my finger. I don't, have a, I don't have a stylus. Does anybody have a stylus? Does anybody use styluses anymore? I haven't had one since I've had a Palm Pilot in like 1998, so I don't know. I don't know. Uh, your unfailing love really means like there's a, this Hebrew word hesed, which means like the unfailing, the love, the loyal, loving kindness that God has revealed himself. You'll see it all, all through the, whole, the Old Testament when you read that word hased. It's the story of Ruth. That's the, the loyal, loving kindness, that, that one who redeems and brings back. And, and so that's, this is what he's saying. According to your loving kindness, the, one, you, you know, the fact that, God, you have kept revealing yourself as the God who redeems and brings back, that's loyal even when we have been so disloyal. According to that, according to your unfailing love, he says, please, God, blot out my transgressions. Like literally, um, the, the picture here is in a, in a, like in a book, and I, I like this because it feels like a whiteboard. Blot out, wipe away, completely erase the thing that is on my record. 
Only you can do that, God. I need you to like literally take the words that are written against me and remove them. He says, wash away all of my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Wash away. This picture is like dirty laundry. Like I have made my clothes so dirty and I need you to wash them clean. I don't know what to do with myself. I can see who I am. I can see what I've done, but I don't, I, I need you to do it. And he says, this is a, a strange one. I know this one's a little, little bit tricky, but he says, against you and you only have I sinned. And you're like, mm, Uriah might have something to say about that. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a little bit of that. But, but David is, I don't think David was saying that he did not uh, commit an offense against Uriah. I think that that was so obvious. But he understood that ultimately his sin couldn't, Uriah couldn't deal with what he had done. Only God could. And the reason he was doing these things, the reason he made these giant mistakes was because his heart wasn't following after God. He wasn't uh, following the way that God had laid out for him. He had gone his own way, and this was the consequence now. So he sees it that way. He sees it from that kind of 10,000-foot view. And next it says, Surely I was sinful at birth. Surely I was sinful at birth. Oh, that was a tough one to do. There we go. In other words, it, as, much as, as much as he's dealing with the consequences of his sin and it being like it's in his face now and the story that Nathan told him and he knows that he's guilty, in some ways it was, it's not a freak accident. It's not like, I don't know what happened. He sees that from, from the, this was always in his heart and character from the time he was born. We were born into sin. We were born into a sinful world. We need someone to be able to wash away our sin. We need someone to be able to forgive us. Like we were born into a place where we, we want to rebel. We want to be our own God. We want to be the Lord of our own lives. We, don't, we, we, we have that in us and we need something in to, to be able to change that transaction because we were born into it. So this is what he's saying. Like surely I was sinful at birth. Like I've, this has been in my heart and without God, this is who I am. And so he says, uh, I think I need the next one, please, Malachi. There it is, thank you. Uh, so he says, create in me a, a pure heart, a clean heart. Create in me. And because he knows that if, if from creation, if from his own creation in his mother's womb, if, if from that point he was already sinful because he's born into a sinful world, he needs to be, like, no, he needs nothing less than the miracle of creation for his life. He needs to be recreated so that he can be whole, so that he can be pure, so that he can be without sin. He's asking literally for the miracle of creation here. And he says, do not cast me uh, from your presence. So I don't know how much you know about David's story, but he's the second king that they've had because King Saul was before him and King Saul was anointed and, and God was with him. And, and then Saul, did there's a bunch of stuff and basically rejected God and, and did his own thing. And Saul was rejected as king. And David eventually succeeded him after a, after a whole hot mess. Like you have to read it to know that's a big story. But, but uh, David watched, he knew Saul. He served Saul. And he watched the transition from him uh, being anointed as king and, and being a subject to God's leadership to the rejection of that and the demise of King Saul and all that happened there. He was a part of that story. And so I, I've, 
commentators think that this is what David is thinking about right here. He's saying, don't cast me from your presence. I know if I keep going down this path, I've seen it in Saul's life. I don't want that for me. Don't cast me from your presence. Let's, let's please help me, God. Find, help me find a way back. I don't, I don't want the end to be like his. And he says, grant me a willing spirit. You have to grant me a willing spirit because I know I need help to long for and to delight in God's word and his way. I don't do that on my own. I don't, I don't just go, oh, I, I, just, I, just love, I just love surrendering my life to Christ every day. I don't. But I need help to be willing to do it and then to be able to see how much better it is. And, and so he's asking for these things because he knows he needs God's help. One commentator said it like this. Uh, this isn't the whole psalm. Obviously, you can read the whole thing. But uh, one commentator said, Few psalms have found as much use as this one among the saints of all the ages. So how about you? Do you need to reconcile your past? Do you see yourself in this psalm? Might I suggest that you don't need to be a murderer or an adulterer to be in a place where you need to make things right with God? Sometimes we get used to that cultural narrative that says, you know, it kind of sees life as weighing out your good deeds and your bad or that karma is going to sort things out. So just try to be on the right side of that. And we don't even know that we've adopted that into our thinking. It's so culturally normal for us. Um, but but this, is, this is not what we learn about in Scripture. That's not the truth about who we actually are. That You just have to do enough good things to outweigh the bad and you're fine. Paul talks about it in his letter to the Romans, and he does not beat around the bush in Romans 3, 10 and 11. And then verse 23 says this, as it is written, um, and Paul here is, is quoting from various Old Testament scriptures when he says this. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So listen, that means that that person that you think is so perfect and doing so much better than you, this applies to them. That person who does pure evil, the one who you're like, I can't, I can't believe they would do those kinds of things. I can't believe they would commit those kinds of atrocities. That person, this applies to them. It means that the person that you look at in the mirror every morning, it applies to them too. It's you, it's you, it's you you're looking at in the mirror. I just want to make sure you caught that. I'm here to tell you this morning, there is so much hope for every single person because of this gospel message. You don't have to spend your whole life wondering if you measure up or if you're doing enough good to outweigh all the times that you were selfish or you cheated or you gossiped or you hurt somebody. You don't have to spend your life living under the weight of that big, ugly thing that you did in the past. There are consequences for our actions, absolutely, but there is hope and freedom from the burden that, um, that, they, are on our, that, that they create in our hearts. And there's a way to prevent us from knowing and serving, and there's, a, there's freedom from the way that they prevent us from knowing and serving and loving God who created us and made a way for us to be close to him. There is hope and freedom. So later in that same letter to the church in Rome, David, uh, uh, Paul has a David moment. Because he's fully facing the truth. Uh, maybe you've heard this scripture before, but Paul is, I think, fully facing the truth of the war going on in his own heart. And he's likely thinking about, you know, I don't know if you know Paul's story at all. 
But his background was that he was so religiously zealous, like enthusiastic, to the point where when this new uh, sect of Judaism came up called uh, The Way, or later on called Christianity, Little Christ's, he went around and had got permission from the higher-ups to go around and kill and persecute Christians to try to cleanse Judaism of them. And he looks back at his own past, I'm sure, when he's saying this, and he says, um, Romans 7, 24 and 25, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then, of course, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you go back to Romans, what he's writing in that letter, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24 says, and all are justified, in other words, made right, by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So you see, the gospel doesn't work unless we recognize that we are sinners, that we've rebelled against the one who created us, that we have tried to be gods and lords of our own lives. But when we see the truth of what is really in our hearts, then we can see Jesus. Then we can see him having paid the price for us. For We can see him freely offering forgiveness and new life in exchange for our brokenness and our sin and our rebellion. And so the gospel then, which means good news, is not just good news. It is literally the best news we could ever hear when we really understand what's in our hearts. So it's no wonder that we have every reason to be people of hope. That even in the darkest season, that we can have hope. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, When you were dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave us all our sins. I love this part. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away. Say this with me. He nailing it to the cross. So you're right. I don't know what you've done. But I will tell you that I know for absolutely certain that there is hope for you because Jesus has given us every reason to hope. Your past can be reconciled and you can be made right with Jesus. And so that's really what communion is all about. Team, you can join me. That's when we, when we, when we uh, come to the communion table. What happens is that we say, we get this. <laughs> we come back to this Psalm 51 David moment over and over again. Not, not to beat ourselves up, but to bring ourselves to a place where we continually recognize the miracle of salvation in our lives. Um, if you want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is where we find instructions to the church in Corinth uh, about communion. And there is, is this thing that we do together as, as, a, as a church, as the body of Christ, before we come into this place, because we, before we, we take these emblems, because we're instructed to do so, and that's to, it says, to examine ourselves. So it's, it's like we don't have the prophet Nathan here telling us a parable to point out something specific in your life right now. How many are happy for that, right? I'm just saying. <laughs> but what, what we do have is we have the Holy Spirit who does this work in our lives when we invite him to do so. 
And so we simply come, if this is new for you, we simply come and say, um, Holy Spirit, like the prophet Nathan, pointed out what David needed to see in his own heart so that he could um, be free and, and come to you and find forgiveness. I need you to point those things out in my heart now so that I can do the same thing, so that I can come to Psalm 51 and I can say, Lord, cleanse me. Create in me a pure heart. And I, I, need, to, I need to be able to do that from, in my life too. And the great thing is the Holy Spirit is like, yeah, let's go. Let's, oh, great, let's go. Let me show you so that you can find freedom. Let me show you the path to freedom. Let me show you the path to having those things lifted off your life. Some of you are, are stuck. Some of you are stuck in habitual sin and you don't know how to get out. You need to come to this moment in scripture and ask the Lord to examine you and you need to come and ask forgiveness and then you need to confess your sin to somebody else who you trust and who can walk with you in accountability. This is, that's what's so great about scripture. It says both ends. It says confess your sin. He's the one who forgives you. It's not me. And then, and then the book of James, I think James chapter five, it says uh, confess your sins to one another. And pray for each other so that you can be healed. So if you're, if you're in, that, in that place and you are stuck in sin and, and you are stuck in something habitual and you can't get out, I want to tell you that you need to, you need to hear me say there is hope for you. That the scriptures, and, uh, the scriptures illuminated to us will walk us through. But no matter where you are or what you've done or who you are, I need you to get this. That this is for us every single day. And, and the prophet Nathan's not going to stand and, and tell you a parable, but I'll tell you the Holy Spirit is here in this place. He's here in your homes off campus. And he wants to point things out to you, to discipline you, so that, so that you can say, I, I see it and I'm ready to move on.